Now, this past week saw the announcement of new English language requirements for Australian partner visas. They'll take effect from mid-next year and applicants will need to learn English to a quote-unquote functional level in order to be considered for a visa. Uh, now, this is all in the interests of social cohesion, of course, but if it sounds familiar, it's because Australia adopted similar language requirements with its infamous white Australia policy, which, as we all know, looked to prevent non-European immigration to the country. There was also Peter Dutton's attempt several years back to try and bring in similar measures. So what message does this send to those of us in Australia who don't fit within the Anglo-Australian identity? Joining us today is lawyer and human rights advocate Nydell Nguyen to chat about these changes. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, I should I should say over that I'm not commenting on a lawyer on this. Um, that's definitely not the hat I'm wearing. I think it's important to distinguish that. Of course, yeah. Um, I you know I wanted to um, start off by talking about social cohesion, which is repeatedly being touted as the reasoning behind these changes. I personally think it's a bit of a dog whistle term um, that's used to, you know, kind of filter out the types of immigrants um, the government doesn't want in this country. What are your thoughts on the term, just as just as Nidal? Um, I think social cohesion is definitely one of the contest grounds for fighting certain cultural wars. And unfortunately, those cultural wars tend to have uh, for lack of a better word, a racial dimension to it, or at least a preferential um, want for certain immigrants more than others. And I have never fully bought into the idea that English is a true measurement of what actually it means to be a good citizen. Nor do I think it's necessarily that important <laughs> when it comes to getting a job, because some of us would know that there are PhD holders and master's holders within our communities that can't get employment. And in any case, that there are, you know, the, the jobs available and the people available looking for those jobs, the number do not necessarily align. So I think it creates an additional barrier of entry. But if you are part of this society, I think it actually acts as a form of social exclusion and not a social inclusive act. If really what the aim is for people to learn English, there is no necessity of having it as a punitive measure. You could still have a requirement for people to learn English. They can still learn it um, in, in the country. Arguably, they're much more, it's much more easier to actually learn it where in, your, in the country you could facilitate, you know, for women especially to be able to attend those classes by having a much more generous, uh, I suppose, childcare policy. I mean, there are other ways, really, if the goal is, is 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 the idea of social inclusion, of achieving this without it becoming, uh, you know, effectively a tool of excluding certain groups. So one of the terms that is being thrown around and was in Bez's um, intro is like, this is kind of like the, the white Australia policy. I mean, is there like a historical similarity to like um, the white Australia policy in having language requirements? It's not even just a white Australian policy. I mean, language has been used as a tool of excluding people. If you, even if you go to the civil rights movement, one way of which limiting access to the voting of African-Americans was to introduce all these ridiculous language tests that ensure that then people could fail them and therefore could not qualify to vote. And so it's a creative way of, of, of really excluding people, but at the same time of trying to, you know, the way it's set up, I think it's, it's made to make the arguments that we're trying to make here look difficult to make because it's like, but why are you even complaining? I mean, this is just a requirement that you speak English. Um, 
But I think if you look at it in the context and look at it in the context of the kind of the cultural wars that has been waged and you look at it in the context of who have been preferred by our immigration policy historically and now, and if you look at, you know, um, the way Minister Dutton, for example, you know, was talking about African white genocides and things like you, you begin to realize there is a preference for European immigration. And so I don't think it's a far it's a far off argument for for those people, for, for people to say, well, actually this is an exclusive operation of it. And it is reminiscent of kind of the language test that was necessary during the you know, the white Australian policy. Mm. I think there is very a, a very um, deliberate uh, need for for having certain immigration, and, and this is not a secret. Like, let's not pretend like this is a secret. We've seen, uh, you know, people like Andrew Bolt talk about the foreign immigration, and that is particularly targeted group of people. We've yeah. seen certain media really push this angle of of that a certain group of people lack the ability to integrate and become part of this society, and. Mm. That part of that part of that lack of the ability to integrate is because they don't come from English-speaking countries. So this is not a secret. Like this is not something that is happening in isolation. It's something that is happening within a larger context. And that's where I think I get slightly frustrated because I think people want to have really siloed, argue, you know, arguments about this issue as if it doesn't touch in on a larger historical and current context. You know, parallel to running conversations about issues of immigration. Mm, yeah, and after after the announcement, um, you start posting a, a series of tweets about the you know shaky ideas of belonging and home for people of color here, and mm-hmm. and those of us that are visibly different, um, and also just like the many barriers to to being accepted as Australian. This really stuck with me because I think this is what it all really comes down to: who's welcome and allowed full participation in citizenship and who isn't. Um, could you expand on those thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, I think, I, I think personally, um, even without the, the political aspect of it, um, the question of who you are, where you belong, and the question of belonging is a life question for any young person growing up. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that you, you have even with your own parents. But I think it is complicated when, when you've moved to a country like Australia and a part of you, a part of you identifies with this country. You know, the, the thing, I think that's another thing I get really frustrated by is these conversations that seem to treat immigrants uh, who either came here or born here as if, you know, they, they can, they're, they're, they're somehow stuck at the point of, of, when they, of where their parents came from or, you know, when they came here, as if there's nothing transformative about the act of living in a different country and the changes that occur and identities transformation that occur here. And so when people talk about immigrants in this country, I find I find that a lot of it is based on their own scared version of who you are, not actually what happens in the process of staying here. And so I think the process of staying and changing, and for me, giving birth and having children and having a citizenship here, does raise those questions about where do I belong and to what extent is my sense of belonging really genuinely embraced by the cultural representation in this country, the, the political representations, the national conversations about identity integration. And, and sadly, I don't think that they are embraced. I think that, you know, there is an extent to which we do feel that we are Australians, you know, whatever that necessarily might mean, but then that we constantly get displaced from owning that identity because of the way the national conversation about who is Australian, who looks like an Australian, who speak like an Australian, who historically belong here 
is very, very narrowed. And if one is to be bold, it's very Eurocentric. That's why we're talking about the English language test. And so people like us, you know, if you're a six foot really black person like me, I am not going to disappear by the second generation. Neither are my kids by the second generation going to be consumed into the notion of whiteness. They're not all of a sudden going to be blonde eye and blue eyes, you know. So, they, 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 so, and so I think that that's the kind of the, cons, the, the first barrier you get and of, of this idea that you can't be Australian, you don't look Australian, you don't speak like an Australian. And in fact, I think the other layer of it is that when you begin to participate in the citizenship of this country by either having a voice, by campaigning for political positions or for policy positions, for example, then, then you are, again, you meet that barrier that you are not Australian, you, you can't speak like that, go back where you come from if you don't like it here. You are not, you know, it's, it's like these constant challenges and these constant negotiations about belonging and identity, and, um, and that's what I try to explore sometimes on my tweets and on my on my writing because these are conversations that I hear young people in this country having, you know, that I know, you know, young girls that see themselves as Australians that want to travel that you know, have never been to South Sudan, do not necessarily relate with every aspect of their of their parents' origin, you know, the, the, and, and for them feeling as if that, the, the, you know, how they look and who they feel or a part of who they feel um, are, are, are not accepted and have no place. Both of them have no place here. So this is something that um, I, I want to touch on with you is this idea of like um, how you can feel like you have a place here if it requires giving up parts of who you are or where you come from or, or even the uh, the identity that is projected onto you by white Australia. Um, it feels like, um, you know, this this language requirement is um, a an institutionalised um, version of this. You know, we have to, we must, you know, speak like an Australian and act like an Australian for us to actually feel truly accepted. And I think that's um, you know, how is there a way forward from this conditional acceptance? Because, you know, for white Australia and for non-white Australia, like, can we be unashamedly black and, you know, uh, be accepted? Or, um, you know, do we need to, like, you know, make some concessions and, you know, sort of appeal to an incrementalist sort of um, way of life? Or, you know, should white Australia just take us for who we are? And, but, uh, yeah, and I, I don't know if I necessarily can answer that directly because I think part of it is all of that. I think part of it is is giving up. You know, that there is aspect of who I am that I think I have given up, and not for bad reason, but I've given up for good reasons because I have changed or I have been convinced by the way things are done in this country. And I think that's part of the becoming part of a country. You embrace certain aspects of it. But there are aspects that I, you know, that 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 you know, I am not an upbringing of Australia only. I came here as an 18, but I came here as a form human being of whom there was a community behind that invested in my life. And that community was my family and it was the community that I grew up in refugee camps. And it was the community that gave me a language and a culture that is it's slightly different or sometimes different from here. And the idea that somehow I am going to just abandon that as if I am a construct of this place is just not even psychologically possible, I think. And so you've got, so you've got that, the, the buying in and then the retaining of those aspects of who you are that give you meaning and is anchoring and is connecting to the history of your family or where you are from. Um, but I, so I, I think that, but I think part of the reason why there is, there, there is that disconnect between who we are and what we see happening in the mainstream of politics of media and other is because I think some of these institutions are stuck in, an, in a singular narrative 
about immigrants and, and particularly certain kind of immigrants and what is our role here. And so, you know, I, I, I sometimes ask this question, who are they afraid of? Because who they speak, who they speak of is, is not who I know. The Sudanese kids I know are not gangbangers, you know, they are working in coals, they serve you at KFC, they are hardworking, they're they're changing, they're both Sudanese and Australians, they're complex, they're not this singular story about, you know, crime. And, and so I think that that's the disconnect is that there isn't really a fuller storytelling of the diversity of African or black and brown immigrants in this country. Instead, what we're stuck with is the kind of generated narrative based on fear and fear mongering that is quite dominant in certain media spaces. And so as, so long as that is the case, and so long as we continue to have a media representation and public representation that is not representative of the diversity in this country, then we will continue to have these impoverished ideas, you know, both policy-wise and the way we relate to each other um, that really lack the full script of what it is. Thank you so much. That's um, plenty to think about. And like, uh, it's like both um, kind of hopeful and also like um, uncomfortable, but I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Nidal, for joining us.